Uh, my name is David, and uh, I'm so excited to be here this morning to carry on in our series called A Worthy Life. We are working through the book of Philippians, uh, and I just want to give you a, a quick review of where we've been before we jump into this morning. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that Philippians is a real letter to real people. Sometimes we forget about that uh, as it being a book of the Bible, but it is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. These are people that he worked with, served, loved, um, and he knew and had a special bond and relationship with. And he's writing a letter back to them, encouraging them in their walk with Christ. And the first thing that we see that he encourages them is he says that God always finishes what he begins. He says, I know that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And he's encouraging the, the believers in Philippi to remember that even though t- things get hard, what God started in your heart, he's going to one day finish. And then last week we talked about the fact that Paul is not writing Philippians under pleasant circumstances. He's writing Philippians from a prison cell. And he says, don't worry about me though. I know that everything that has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that in every way Christ is proclaimed. And we talked about that sometimes it's even through suffering and and through hard times that Jesus is proclaimed most boldly and brilliantly in our lives, not when we are um, on top of the world and not when everything's going right, but when we are able to proclaim and praise Christ even in the darkest moments, that that is the time that Jesus shines most brightly in our lives. And today, we're going to talk about the verse that this whole series is named after, This whole series is named after this idea of what is it to live a worthy life? What is it to live a worthy life? So if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. It would be our gift to you. If you'll stop by the connection table on your way out, we will give you a Bible that we have for you. Um, Now, if you just forgot your Bible or you haven't seen your Bible in a while, maybe look for it before you come to get one. But if you just don't own one, we would love for you to have that. The verse is also going to be on the screen behind me. And it's also, if you look inside your worship guide right there in your note sheet, there it's on the back of your bulletin insert. So Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Paul writes this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So what I want to do in our time remaining this morning is I want to look at these uh, four verses, 27 through 30. I want to look at it and begin to see what Paul says at the very beginning. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, if we take this verse at face value, that is a steep, steep task. I'm a pastor, and on my best day, the best day, like if I love my wife really well, and and I don't like say a, a cuss word, and I only watch like the Christian channel on TV, like it, like on my best day, I still know that I'm not worthy of 
the gospel. I still can't quite put it together sometimes how Jesus knows me, every thought that I think, every action that I do, every intention of my heart, and how he still loves me and wants a relationship with me. Am I the only one that feels that way? Anybody else in here feel like sometimes you're just like, I don't understand how this is happening. If we take this at face value and go, of course I'm not worthy of the gospel. And here's the bad news. You aren't. You aren't. You're not worthy of it. You'll, you'll never be able to work your way into a spot where you are worthy of it. But the great news and the best news of the gospel is that Jesus makes us worthy of it. He makes us worthy of the gospel. You see, two things happen on the cross. One thing we always talk about, the other thing that we sometimes forget. When Jesus went to the cross and he died, he died and he forgave your sins. And we always talk about that. We say Jesus went to the cross and he forgave our sins. But the thing that we forget is that Jesus not only forgives our sins through his death, but he gives us his righteous life. When we trust in him, not only are our sins forgiven by the death of Jesus, but God counts Jesus' righteous, perfect, sinless life, and he accredits that to me. And he no longer sees me when he looks at me. He sees me through Jesus. My wife is um, five foot two, I'm six foot one, and uh, I outweigh her by um, 80 plus pounds. And sometimes we, there's this fun game that we play where um, Allison will stand behind me and I'll stand here and she, you can't see her. Like I, I literally eclipse her entirely. Sometimes people are having conversations with me and I'm like, what do you think about Allison? Like, <laughs> She's behind me. Uh, it's just a game, just be aware. Um, I totally eclipse her. And, and at that point, with Allison standing behind me, if you're going to look at Allison, you have to do what? You've got to look through me. When we trust in Jesus, that's the way that God sees you. He doesn't see you and your sin and your jacked up life. He looks at you through Jesus. And it's Jesus that makes us worthy of the gospel. Now, how do we attain this? How does this happen to us? How do we get the gospel? If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen behind me. There's this great story in John chapter 3 where Jesus meets with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a great question. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus here something very, very critical. He says that you must be born again, that salvation comes through a new birth. And Nicodemus goes, wait, 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 I'm old. How am I going to be born again? And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. He's saying, if you'll put your trust in me, what I won't do is I won't give you a brand new physical life, but I will give you a brand new spiritual life. I will redeem your soul. You'll have a new life. There will be a new life, a new man inside of you. It's this idea of being born again, and we understand that salvation comes not by worth, but by birth. Not by worth, but by birth. 
Um, so uh, my wife is pregnant. Everybody knows that. Woo! We find out this week what the baby is. It's an exciting thing. We find out the gender this week. People have told us crazy things about how to find the gender. They're like, if you take a clock or like a pen and you hold it over your belly and it sways, it's a boy. And if it doesn't sway, it's a girl. Or, or sometimes if you throw baby powder on that, the baby will write its name on the baby powder. Or if you say, you know, Bloody Mary in the, in the, turn out the lights in the bathroom, say Bloody Mary three times, turn around, a witch appears and tells you, I might be getting that confused with something else. But, I, I, but this whole idea of just this, uh, of, of this excitement about, about a, a child coming into the world, and one day, uh, in, in, in 20 weeks from now, I'm going to have a, a, a son or a daughter and, and, and that son or daughter is going to be born into my family, and I'm going to love that child. Why? Because it's been born. I'm its father. It's my son. What a, what a terrible father would I be if when my son or daughter is born, I go, you know what, kid? Let's see what you can do. Like, you're, you're just crying here. I need you to earn some of this love here. Why don't you start holding down a part-time job, start paying some rent? You can't even walk or hold your head up. Why should I love you? No, like, that's foolish, right? Like, my son doesn't have to earn my love through his works. He has my love because he's my son. In much the same way, salvation comes to us not by worth, but by birth. When we are born again, we have the affections and the love of a father. We don't have to work for it. We've now been born into it. So when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, what he's not talking about is working our way up to salvation. He's actually talking about working out our lives from salvation. We're not working to earn God's affection. We're working from God's affection. So that changes the dynamic of this verse. No longer we look at this going, gosh, I don't measure up. Through Christ, we measure up now. So how should my life look differently? Because Jesus has made me worthy of the gospel. And this is where Paul goes later in the verse. So look what he says next. Um, He says, So whether I come to you or see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So I think there are three things here that Paul talks about that help us, that should mark our lives in a way that we might be called worthy of the gospel. That when Jesus makes us worthy through salvation, these three things should mark our lives going forward. And if they do, we will, have, we will live a life that is worthy of the gospel that Paul talks about. He gives us three things. Uh, the first thing that he says is he says, I want to hear that you're standing firm. He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm and in one spirit. I want to hear that you're standing firm. The idea of standing firm is foundational. Um, there are tons of houses being built right now. There are houses being built right behind my house. It's really hard to kind of write and like think and pray at my house when it's just constant, just like people hammering up drywall, you know, like, like but they're building homes behind my house. So I've gotten a front row seat to see homes being built. And I'll tell you what, every home starts the same way. You know how it starts? With a foundation. They don't show, the framers don't show up on day one and just start hammering up some walls on the grass. Like that's not going to work. You've got to have a foundation. So what Paul says is I want to hear that you're standing firm. I want to hear that you have a foundation. And our foundation is that Jesus has made us worthy. That we've put our trust and our hope. We just sang about that. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a foundation. We stand on that. Everything comes up after that. It's this idea that Jesus has done what we were unable to do. 
That's what we stand on. Our foundation, what we stand on, what our lives are built on is the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 7. Uh, you can look there later, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He says, there's a wise man who builds his house on the rock, and when the storm comes, doesn't knock the house down. He says, but a foolish man builds his house on the sand, and when the storms come, it knocks the house down, and the fall of the house is great. What Jesus is talking about is what are we building our lives on? If we build our lives on anything other than the person and work of Jesus, we're setting ourselves up for destruction. So there's a foundation there. So what do we build through that foundation? Jesus standing firm in the foundation of who Jesus is. He says that we're standing firm in one spirit. He says we're standing firm in one spirit. Now what does that mean? Um, in John 14, and it'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. I've got a lot of scripture this morning, so I know some of you that are type A are like, where is he going? John 14. Here's what Jesus says in 14, 15 through 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says this to his disciples to encourage him. He's just gotten done telling them, I'm not always going to be with you. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're God. What do you mean you're not always going to be with us? Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not always physically going to be with you. I'm going to go back to the Father. And he says, but when I go, I'm going to send another, the very Spirit of God. And not only will he walk beside you, but the Spirit of God will live in you. He says, this Spirit of God is a helper. It guides you. It teaches you. It's going to tell you what to do and how to live. And it's going to convict. And it's going to encourage and he says, this is a spirit that's unifying and it's going to live not only inside of one believer but inside of all believers. That when we trust in Jesus, not only are we given a new heart but we're given the spirit of God inside of us and it's this spirit that unifies believers regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of whether you vote Democrat or Republican, regardless of your uh, social standing, regardless of all these things that would keep us apart, there is one spirit of God inside all believers that unifies us and Paul says it's through this spirit that you're gonna work and operate and live and breathe and move. Standing on the foundation of Jesus and through the work of the Spirit. And it brings peace and unity inside of our church. We did this a couple weeks ago. We just did this quick survey just to see what kind of different people are in the room. And it was unbelievable in a room of 100 people how many different experiences and life and, and walks of life that we're coming from. What unites all of us together what unites all of us together when it seems like there's nothing worldly that we have in common? It's the one unifying Spirit of God that lives inside of all believers. And Paul says, let me hear that you're standing firm in this Spirit, in this unifying Spirit. And we get the first clue here that the worthy life is one that rests on the work of Jesus and is unified in Spirit with other believers. That the worthy life is one that rests in the work of Jesus, our foundation, and works, and we're, and we're unified in our spirit with other believers. We recognize that, man, there, there might not be anything worldly that we have in common, but we have the same spirit of God, so we're going to work together to make sure that Jesus is proclaimed. 
He says, I want to see that you're standing firm in one spirit. Secondly, he says, I want to see that you're striving side by side. He says, with one mind, that you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the second piece of this. The first is standing firm. The second is striving side by side. He says, I want to see you're standing firm in one spirit. I want to see with one mind that you're striving side by side. Now, one mind, when we think about this, we we sometimes think about this idea of like a hive mind, right? Or that we're all robots. And now like we just move and do everything the same and we all look the same, talk the same, sound the same. If you ever go to a church planner conference, it's it's pretty kind of crazy. Everybody's wearing like plaid and jeans and glasses and kind of has facial hair and a faux hawk. Like it's just this incredible, like it's like do we all look alike and sound alike and talk alike? Like You know, it's one of those things. What does it mean to be of one mind? That's not at all what it means. It doesn't at all mean that we all conform to one type of person. It says simply that we have a unifying spirit inside of us, so we have a unifying goal to work towards. One mind means that we come around one goal that all of us, regardless of where we are in life, if we have the spirit of God in us, we're going to work towards the same goal, and that goal is namely the glory of God through the spread of the gospel. That's what we do. That's what we work for. That's what we give our lives for. That's why we partner with other brothers and sisters who are different than us to work towards because we have one mind, one goal, that Jesus would be seen and known. A very, very smart man by the name of uh, Robbie Zacharias, he's a pastor, writer, author, one time said this, and, and I love this quote. He said, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Just because we are unified together doesn't mean that we're all going to look the same, talk the same, sound the same. When Jesus is more glorified is when we are unified even though we are different and diverse. And when we work together unified in the spirit with different gifts and abilities to accomplish the same goals. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 In verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. You see what Paul says there? He says just the way that your body is formed and has different functions, that your hand has a different function than your foot and your knee functions differently than your elbow and your ears operate differently than your eyes. He says that all of those parts are working together under the same mind with the same spirit. He says so it is with the body of Christ. That my gift and abilities is is different than Mark's gifts and abilities. And and Mark's gifts and abilities are different than Matt's gifts and abilities. And and what we're doing is we're not competing. We're not all trying to be eyes. But we're using the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given us under one mind, through one spirit, to make him known where we are. He says that that's the spirit. That's the mind. It doesn't mean that we're all trying to do the same thing, that when you get saved that you immediately need to be a pastor or a missionary. No. Some of you, God has designed you to be teachers. He's designed you to be businessmen. He's designed you to be doctors and nurses and stay-at-home moms. And he's given you these gifts, and you need to glorify him with that and through that. And in that, the name of Jesus goes further and farther than if we all were trying to be on stage on Sunday morning. He says, one spirit, one mind. 
I love to think about it the way that uh, classical music, if you ever listen to a classical musical piece played by one instrument, it's beautiful. But if you listen to that same classical music piece played by a symphony orchestra with everybody playing the same music but with a different instrument, how much more powerful and beautiful and overwhelming it is. Because there's different parts. And they're all playing their part for the same goal and under the same, with the same music. And that's what we're trying to do here as the body of Christ. We discover what is our gifts, how has God's wired me, and how can I work with other people so that Jesus might be made known through our church, in our community, because we're working together with one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. So the worthy life, it's not, it's not only, the worthy life is not only one that rests in the work of Jesus as is unified in spirit with other believers. But the worthy life is one that works side by side with those believers for the spread of the gospel. The worthy life, the life that we're trying to live out from the salvation that Jesus has given to us works side by side with other believers for the sake of the gospel. Paul says that's how we begin to live this worthy life, that we're standing firm with one spirit, the very spirit of God living inside of us, with one mind, the same goal, the glory of Jesus in our communities and in our context, striving side by side, working together for the sake of the gospel. And the third thing that he says he says, we are, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. So he says that we're standing firm, we're striving side by side, and we're fearless. We're fearless. We're not frightened by anything that our opponents, that those who come against the word of God might throw at us. Now, Paul has to be one of the most fearless individuals that I've ever read about, heard about. If you, if you read the life of Paul in Acts, every other page, Paul is getting beaten, he's getting thrown in jail, he's getting threatened. Constantly, Paul is running up against people who want to do him harm because he won't stop preaching the gospel. He won't stop doing what he's encouraging the church at Philippi to do. And sometimes when I read about Paul's fearlessness, I'm like, how does Paul do this? Well, he's told us how he does it. He, he just told us how he's fearless. You see, Paul understands that his life is built on Christ. He understands that his whole life is built on the foundation of Jesus, not on Paul. That's why he's able to say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I'm going to live in a way that honors Christ. And if I die, I'm going to be with him. So I'm not afraid because my life is built on Christ. He has God's spirit in him. He knows that the very spirit of God lives inside of him and is working with him and empowering him to do the things that he's doing. In Romans 8, 26, he says the spirit of God, it helps us in our weakness. He says, when I am weak, you are strong. In Romans 8, 33, he says, if God is for us, who's gonna be against us? We sing this song, whom shall I fear? If God is for me, who can be against me? Whom shall I fear? Paul says, 
what do I have to be afraid of? Standing firm for me to live as Christ and die as game. If God's for me, who's going to be against me? He has the partnership of other believers. In Philippians 1, 4, and 5, he says, I make my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the beginning until now. So Paul, his life is built on Christ. He has the Spirit of God with him. He has his brothers and his sisters behind him. And he's going, what do I have to be afraid of? What are you going to do? Look at what I already have through Jesus. So this is how he's able to say, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. What are they going to do to you? Your life is built on the foundation of Christ. You have his spirit inside. You have brothers and sisters that are behind you. What what should you be afraid of? And then he says this, and it blows me away that he says this. 29, he says, for it has been granted to you For the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you hear that? It's been granted to you, like it's a gift. He doesn't say, you know what, suffering for Christ, man, you just got it's just something you got to grin and bear. He says, it's been granted to you. God's given you this gift. Paul says that there are two great privileges for believers to believe on Jesus and to suffer for his sake. He says, those are gifts that God has given to you. How in the world is that a gift? How in the world is suffering for Christ a gift? And and here's how it's a gift. Um, Last week we talked about this idea of perception, right? That that hope, uh, and maybe if you've been following along in the Philippians study, this idea that perception Informs, atti- informs attitude which dictate, or dictates attitude which informs circumstances. This idea that the problem is not circumstances, the problem is our perspective on the circumstances. So Paul, when he says suffering is a gift, he has a different perspective than you and I have because we fear suffering. We're afraid of it. Nobody wants to suffer, right? Nobody wants to, bad thing, to go through bad things. Nobody wants to suffer for righteousness' sake because we're afraid of that. Paul has a different perspective, though. He says, no, 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 suffering is a gift. In Romans 3, he tells us why suffering is a gift. Look at what he says in in Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, I said Romans 3. Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit is given to us. So he tells us what the good things that suffering produces in us. He says it produces endurance, which in turn produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So he's taken the fear out of suffering. He says that we've been gran- it's been granted to us. This is the way that God produces these other things in you, is through hardship. I'm going to tell you two stories, and I'm going to be done. Um, there's a really great book out. It's by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, it's brand new. It's called uh, David and Goliath. I, w- I could not recommend it more highly to you. Um, in this book, Gladwell writes about um, Br- uh, Britain in World War, right before, leading up to World War II. Leading up to World War II, Winston Churchill and the British government were terrified, were very, very afraid that the Germans would bomb London. It was, military, it was militarily strategic for the Germans to just begin to bomb London. And in in 1937, uh, somebody actually wrote a report 
about what would happen if the Germans bombed London. They were terrified of this. The, the report says that if the Germans began to bomb London, what would probably happen is 600,000 people would die, a million people would be injured, and London would fall into panic and chaos, and it would cost them the war. Churchill and the government were just, they, they didn't know what to do with this. And sure enough, in 1940, the bombings began. And for 50, 57 straight days, Nazi Germany bombed London. That is incredible. That's two and a half months. Every day, the city of London was being bombed. And in the end, 40,000 people were killed, 46,000 people were injured, and over a million buildings were destroyed. However, Something interesting happened in Blitzkrieg, under the Blitzkrieg in London. The people didn't panic. Actually, the people's morale began to climb. People would write about being in London during this time and seeing school children playing in the streets and people going about their lives, living their lives as if everything were normal. And somebody began to do a little bit of research of this later on, trying to figure out why, imagine if your community was being bombed every night. How would we live life as normal? Began to do a little bit of research. And the researchers found that when the bombings began, it created three different groups of people. One, it created casualties, people that died. People that die can't create panic because they're dead. Uh, Secondly, it created Um, what were called near misses. These were people who saw a loved one die or in a home when a bomb went off, and and it traumatized them. These people were just crippled and traumatized by what they had seen. But then it also created something that they called remote misses. This is a group of people who saw the bombers, heard the bombing, and every day recognized that they were still alive and that they were still here and that things were still happening. And what they started to figure out was that a near miss traumatized you, but a remote miss made you feel invincible. So what was actually happening under the bombing is that as Germany kept bombing people and more and more people started to feel remote misses, more and more people started to feel invincible. They started to feel like this is happening. We're living under the bombings and we're still here. We can live through anything. And they lived their lives, and they pushed through, and they began to work and play, and that's why you saw all of these things. The Germans bombing London actually took the fear out of being bombed. So let me tie this story into Acts 5. In Acts 5, we read about the apostles, and that they were going about Jerusalem, and they were preaching the gospel. They were telling people about Jesus. And eventually, the Pharisees had enough. And the Pharisees arrested them, drug them into court, tried them, and put them in prison. But that night, while they were in prison, said an angel of the Lord came and opened all the doors and told him to go back and start preaching again. And when an angel of the Lord bails you out of prison, you do what he says. So they got out and they went back into the temple and they started preaching again. And it says the Pharisees came back and they were like, didn't we just throw these guys in jail? And it says that they took him before the high priest. And in Acts chapter 5, this begins to happen. This, this exchange between uh, Peter and the high priest begins to happen in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 33, the high priest said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him in his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we were witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And if you'll skip down to verse 40, uh, there's a man, uh, uh, one of the, one of the uh, uh, teachers of the law actually begins to kind of talk sense into the others. He says, no, 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 we can't kill these guys. It'll start a riot. But look what happens in 40. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Have you seen what's happening here between these two stories? The Germans bomb London. Takes the fear out of being bombed. All of a sudden, the people feel invincible. Or you and I would look at that and go, that's terrible suffering. They're living in a city that's being bombed. All of a sudden, the fear is out of being bombed. And they live as if they are invincible. Here, the Pharisees beat the apostles. The apostles go, hey, we're suffering for Jesus. That's what he told us what happened. And it takes the fear out of persecution. And they go right back. Because they're fearless. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Don't be afraid. You have the Spirit of God in you. Your life is standing built on the foundation of Christ. You have brothers and sisters that are behind you. What do we have to be afraid of? The worthy life is spent fearlessly working together in the spirit of Christ for the glory of his name. The worthy life is spent fearlessly working together in the spirit of Christ for the glory of his name. And my prayer is that that would mark the church at Cane Bay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he made us worthy. That's not through my works. It's through his life and death and resurrection. Thank you that you've given us your spirit that lives inside of us, that encourages us, that teaches us truth, comforts us, that tells us not to fear. Father, thank you for other believers that you've put your spirit in. God, and I pray that we would encourage and challenge one another as we work together so that your name might be known, your glory might be seen in our community. So Father, I pray that in this room this morning, through your word, somebody's eyes have been opened and somebody's heart has received the truth. God, that you are with us, that you've forgiven us, that the worthy life is the one lived from salvation, not towards it. God, and that we would be a church who fearlessly and boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being afraid of anything our opponents can do to us.
It is then and only then that you will be known, seen, and recognized for who you are in our community. I pray we would work hard to that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.